Welcome to the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. In celebration of Dawn Mi Choi's National Book Award for her stunning tour de force, DMZ Colony, we wanted to share a talk she gave for the Bagley Wright Lecture Series several years back. Listeners will find elements of this talk, which includes, among other things, discussion of Walter Benjamin's bread, Korean cornbread, warships, Ingmar Bergman's The Silence, and Kim Hyesoon's Mirrors, reflected and refracted in the pages of DMZ Colony. Please enjoy Translation is a Mode, Translation is an Anti-Neocolonial Mode. This talk that I'm going to give is a talk that I gave last year for American Literary Translators um, Association. And um, I decided last year that I would accept um, all challenges, uh, especially things that I'm most afraid to do, like doing things like this, talking in front of people. Um, So when they asked me to give a keynote, um, I uh, said yes, and um, and so I'm going to give that same talk here. Um, I uh, began to write poetry um, as I was um, translating. So poetry and translation um, are always intertwined for me. Um, in uh, many ways, my poetry and translation is a house for my poetry. So I should really call this um, talk, um, yeah, it's a talk about my house. Um, the title, um, Translation is a Mode, the, uh, the first half of the title is from Walter Benjamin's The Task of the Translator, translated by Harry Zone. The other half, I hope, is its twin, a retranslation, a radical hybrid of Benjamin's brilliant concept. This hybridity comes from a divided land, divided by the superpowers of the Cold War. Prior to the US intervention, Korea was under Japanese colonial rule. This year marks the 72nd anniversary of Korea's division, and also the 64th anniversary of the temporary ceasefire of the Korean War, 1950-53. A peace treaty was never signed, so the two Koreas are still technically at war. Nearly four million, mostly civilians, were killed during the war. I come from a land where we are taught that the U.S. saved us from commies and that North Korea is our enemy. I come from a land of neo-colonial fratricide. I come from such tunis. I speak as a twin. The U.S. established a temporary military rule of Korea from 1945 to 1948 and has never left. South Korean activists say there are nearly 100 U.S. military bases and and installations in South Korea, a land that is only one-fourth the size of California. And currently, there are approximately 280,000 U.S. troops stationed. In time of war, the U.S. military has operational control over South Korean forces. And since we are still technically at war, we are also technically and perpetually under U.S. military command. 
I come from such near colony. Since the end of the Korean War, the US and South Korea have carried out joint military exercises. The names of these joint exercises are worthy of our attention as translators or writers or poets. Counterblow, strong shield, focus lens, team spirit, RSO and I, reception staging onward movement and integration, key resolve, fall eagle. These are neo-colonial joints, hybrids, spirits. These are order words to use Deleuze and Guattari term. I cross such order words and map them and superimpose another kind of map, my translations of Kim Essun's poetry. For me, Benjamin's translation is a mode, must be jointed, with translation is an anti-neocolonial mode. I must speak as a radical twin. For Deleuze and Guattari, language is a map, not a tracing, because they say language is not content to go from a first party to a second party, from one who has seen to one who has not, but necessarily goes from a second party to a third party, neither of whom has seen. Translation is a map, a mode that can trigger endless crossings from one party to another, neither of whom is seen. So when Benjamin points out that translation, which intends to perform a transmitting function, cannot transmit anything but information, hence something inessential. I believe like Deleuze and Guattari, he's also pointing to the mapping aspect of language and translation beyond the tracing. In a little translation manifesto called Deformation Zone by Joel McSweeney and Johannes Goranson, translation is already a mode, a map, a work of art, a radical regime that transforms and conforms. Translation is both a thing, a substance, a material, and a conveyance, a way that one material is converted to another form. In the deformation zone, translation is a wound that makes impossible connections between languages, unsettling stable ideas of language, productive ideas of literature. I'm not content to just go from Korean to English. I'm not content to uphold the notion of national literature. We already know that national literature is fundamentally third world, not universal. I want to make impossible connections between the Korean and the English, for they are impossibly misaligned by neo-colonial war, militarism, and neoliberal economy. The two languages have, have very little in common linguistically, yet they are, one of, they are of one tongue, almost. Because in a neo-colonial zone, as Deleuze and Qatari have already noted, there is no mother tongue only a power take over by a dominant language. Benjamin leads us to his notion of pure language, the sum of all the languages of the world, with the word bread in German and French, brock and pang, as examples of words that have different modes of intention, 
but mean that they're the same thing. But if I were to dislocate Benjamin's broth and thumb into Korea's neo-colonial zone, they would probably encounter another word for bread, bang. The Korean word for bread, bang, is obviously a transformation or deformation of the French word bang. It is most likely that it arrived in Korea already deformed because it arrived through the Japanese deformation zone. And if I were to add oksusu, which means corn, in front of bang, it becomes oksusu bang. Cornbread and oksusu bang do intend the same object and may even taste the same, except that they arise from very different historical and political intentions. Oksusu bang was fed to school children in South Korea after the Korean War. It was intended as food aid from the US. So my tongue, even before it had ever encountered the English language, was a site of power takeover, war, wound, deformation, and ultimately, and already, motherless. Prior to the contemporary power takeovers, the Korean vernacular script, Hangul, was invented in the 15th century by King Sejong and his team of linguists to match the spoken Korean language. And it was intended for women and commoners who did not have access to formal education. What is not well known about Hangul is that it also had an important role for the upper class. It was meant as an aid to correct pronunciation of Chinese characters and for producing translated annotations of Chinese texts. In other words, the vernacular script was invented to maintain the class division by having two separate writing systems, keeping women and commoners outside of privileged knowledge and therefore outside of power. And to put, it, to put it more bluntly, a power takeover was part of the vernacular script's necessity, its invention. I was already born with a tongue with a task to translate, but motherless and expelled from power. But no one is immune from the power takeover, not even King Sejong. In the newest trilateral US-South Korea-Japan military drill against North Korea, three South Korean warships named after King Sejong were sent across the South China Sea to the territorialized waters of Hawaii. These warships are equipped with a ballistic missile defense system made by Lockheed Martin called Aegis Combat System, named after a shield worn by Zeus and Athena in the Greek mythology. This is what trilateral militarized translation drill looks like. It floats, it kills. My tongue, your tongue, is already an aggregate. The impossible connections between languages, a site of multiple and collective enunciation. There is no individual enunciation, as Deleuze and Guattari have said. I say, we are all floaters. We are all motherless translators. What makes Osusupan cornbread most remarkable is not the seemingly benign humanitarian intention behind it 
are the fact that on a local bodily tongue level, it creates intense longing, a lifelong craving, which could easily be translated as a desire to be colonized, but it certainly is translated, and it is certainly is translated this way at the level of US foreign policy and diplomacy. But my tongue deforms, it disobeys. I translate this longing as homesickness, which is, which is a form of illness, a form of intensity. In Bergman's film, The Silence, um, the film actually takes place in a hotel, so this is a perfect uh, location. Uh, 1963 opens with a scene on a train, and Esther, um, an ill translator who soon coughs up blood. The boy is Johann, a son of Esther's sister, Anna, who is not a translator and therefore not ill. The only time when Esther, the translator, is not coughing up blood or deathly ill is when she's typing up a translation or taking notes while she's reading. And, like many translators or poets or writers, she smokes and drinks quite a bit. And, of course, I do none of that. <laughs> Nitzel, stand young, Baalik. Little Johann here points to the foreign words, Bergman's made-up language, and asks his translator aunt, Esther, what does it mean? She asks, she answers, I don't know. They're traveling in a foreign country, and an impending war or military takeover is suggested by the images of tanks and men in military uniforms with berets and sunglasses at a town called Timoka. There are many incredible things about this film. But I will just focus on one aspect of Bergman's genius. His genius lies in the use of mirrors throughout the film. The mirrors are sites of translations, deformation zones. Here, Esther, needing more drink, has called the hotel waiter and she asks him whether he speaks French, English, then German. His mouth moves, but the sounds he utters are silence with occasional incomprehensible gibberish. Obviously, he's speaking a foreign language. And there is Esther reflected in the mirror, holding a bottle of booze, and miraculously, the bottle makes its way into the hand of the waiter. So, maybe go back one more. So you can see how she's reflected in the mirror and she's holding the bottle and the waiter is outside the mirror in the next one. And now the waiter is holding the bottle. This miraculous act taking place in the mirror is an act of translation, a translation performance. It's only natural that the translation is conducted in the mirror, for it is a site of various reflections, languages, a site where things are already mirrored, re-represented, a site where language goes from a second party to a third party, neither of whom is seen. Like translation, Bergman's mirror 
is a site of mapping. Kinnison's genius also lies with the way she uses mirrors. In her poem, Memories of Giving Birth to a Daughter, crossings take place through mirrors. They're zones of intensities through which an intensity passes from zone to zone. I open the mirror and enter. Mother is inside the mirror, sitting. I open the mirror and enter again. Grandmother is inside the mirror, sitting. I push aside this grandmother mirror and step over a door sill. Great-grandmother is inside the mirror, laughing. I place my head inside great-grandmother's laughing lips. Great-great-grandmother, younger than me, turns around inside the mirror, sitting. I open this mirror and enter, enter, and enter again. All the ancestral mothers are sitting inside a darkening mirror. And these mirrors mutter and call in my direction, Mommy, Mommy. Mirrors have, long, mirrors have been long used in Korean shaman's rituals as armor to intensify energies, to induce trances, or to light a path to the underworld during spirit travel. In this zone of shamans, the lowly outsiders, the spoken and written hunger, thrived. So Kim Il-sung's mirrors derive from a historically and linguistically expelled zone. And Kim points out that it was where women could redefine, redefine their prescribed identities through shaman narratives, such as Princess Abandoned. The place Princess Abandoned travels to via death is a place of death within life, a feminine space of creation. It is Hyunbin. Kim explains Hyun as closed eyes, therefore everything is black, and Bin as a signifier for female reproductive organs, a mouth of a lock, a valley, a mountain spring. Inside this dark womb, the possibility of all life is held, at that place, patriarchy, the male-centered thing, breaks. The universality of all things breaks. I call it a place of women's chorus, not the other chorus, K-O-R-U-S, which stands for Korea-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. There is another layer to Kim Hyo-soon's expelled zone. While Kim Hyo-soon was working as an editor, she had to go back and forth between the publishing house she worked for and the military censors. Many of the manuscripts were handed back to her all blackened with ink. I think of Kim Il-sung's mirrors as shields. They also induce in me a trance-like state when I translate her poems, because afterwards I can never remember how I translated them. Most importantly, Kim's mirrors are translation surfaces. They house mothers with motherless tongues, making endless crossings from one generation to another, from woman to woman, from language to language, creating what Benjamin calls an embryonic or intensive form. Wokeness translation mirrors are pregnant with illness, homesickness, and even puns. 
here's another genius translation language. A newspaper carrier hands a newspaper to Esther's sister, Anna, at a cafe, and she quickly flips through the paper in gibberish in a foreign language and briefly notice the only thing she's familiar with, an announcement of Johann Sebastian Bach's Goldberg variations. And then to this shot, where we see the newspaper board on the back of the carrier, and at the same time, Anna's eye in the mirror of her compact powder case. The powder case is empty, so she didn't really open it to powder her face, but to translate. And what's mirrored is her own eye, a variation of her eye. She's not a translator, but her eye is already a site of variations. I like to think that Bergman is punny here. She may not be a translator, but she does have an eye for translation. That was supposed to be funny, but... <laughs> While Anna is out and about chasing her bodily desires, Esther is more or less confined to bed. Like Kim Il-sung's ancestral mothers, she practically lives inside the mirror, amongst other mirrored images. Those fancy books that she translates as pointed, pointed out by Anna with a tone of envy, sarcasm, and disapproval. Anna despises her ill sister who lives inside the mirror perpetually working on fancy books written in a foreign language. To Anna, Esther is practically a foreigner. So it's only natural that Anna hates Esther. Like translation, foreigners are despised. But Anna's son, like his aunt Esther, is prone to foreign, foreign words and therefore homesickness. Esther asks Johan, are you homesick? And he nods, yes. Little Johan is also confined to bed, reading a Russian novel in translation, A Hero of Our Time, and asks his aunt why she translates. The silence ends with little Johan reading the foreign words that his aunt has written down for him. He has become a foreigner, like his translator and. I became a foreigner when I was a few years older than little Johan. We were fleeing from the US-backed dictatorship of Park Chung-hee, which began in 1961 and came to a halt in 1979 when he was assassinated by his own head of intelligence, only to be replaced by even more brutal dictatorship by Chan Duhan. I could instantly recognize Bergman's made-up foreign language because that is how English appeared to me when I was growing up in Korea. And I pretended to be a foreigner, pretending to write in English because I thought my father was a foreigner and wanted to be like him. What I wrote was pure gibberish so gibberish, incomprehensibility, was my very first encounter with intensity. I pretended to be a foreigner even before I really became one. This is why I think of translators as seekers of incomprehensibility. 
My encounter with contemporary Korean women's poetry happened about the same time as my involvement with an organization called the International Women's Network Against Militarism, which is made up of students, teachers, researchers, and grassroots activists from Okinawa, Japan, South Korea, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and the, U and the US. My primary role in the network was to translate and interpret for South Korean activists and survivors of military violence and sexual exploitation. At the network's third international meeting in Okinawa, Japan in 2000, the network members first articulated what has since become a core part of our approach. The idea that interpretation is a political act. We were able to arrive at this perspective because of the knowledge the women in the network has been accumulating and creating since the first meeting in 1997. The knowledge that not only our lives and struggles are interconnected, but our languages are also interconnected by histories of imperialism, colonialism, and militarism, and by increasing economic interdependence. So this experience in the network helped me to realize that translating Korean women's poetry is also a political act. It was no accident that I was translating Kim Hye-sun's poetry. Kim Hye-sun was an active member of a South Korean feminist organization, Another Culture. And much of their activism overlapped with the activism of the South Korean women in the network. I don't think it's redundant to say that many of the weapons against humanity are manufactured here in the USA, inside its empire's belly. It's perpetually bloated by war. At the moment, it's bombing in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Syria, and Libya. And Nick Turse reports in The Nation that its special operations forces carry out countless missions on a daily basis in 135 nations, which is roughly 70% of the countries on the planet. This is Ferguson. We have combat zones here too, through militarized policing that overwhelmingly impacts the poor and the people of color. Neo-colonial, neoliberal militarism is manufactured in the USA. This is why I think translation is a mode. Translation is an anti-neocolonial mode is relevant to all of, all of us translators, poets, writers, editors, and publishers, whether we are from here or elsewhere, whether we are foreigners or not, whether we speak silence, foreign words, gibberish, or English. I speak as a twin. Thank you. So this um, photograph I actually is in Hollywood Wall, and um, I covered their ugly faces with flowers some writing at the bottom half. Um, and my father uh, was here at this moment. 
1961. Um, Pak Chun Hee on the on the right, he led the coup, and, um, and this was the day. It was right in front of the city hall of Seoul, um, and they kind of announced um, that they, you know, announced martial law. Um, and I always wondered whether this person was my father. Um, so when I went back to Seoul last December, um, I walked into the city hall. So it's, it's the same, it was shot at the same day. And I went upstairs and there was like a uh, display of the history of Seoul. And I reached uh, 1961 and there was, you know, and, and then there was my father right here. So, um, so now we're going to uh, perform for you um, at three and four. Um, which is actually based on my father uh, telling me his experience of filming this day and who he saw and what was going on and, um, and what took place just uh, a few weeks afterwards um, at the U.S. Ambassador's uh, part garden party. So, um, several hundred cadets in West Point style 
uniform marched to the square of Seoul City Hall. The Army Chief of Staff looked like a naughty boy. A three-star general, O-Starch, he was giving a speech. About six generals stood behind him at the top of the stairs. Oh, Petty Cody. Oh, Petty Coup. Who is General Park? 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 Oh, pretty shoes. Nobody knew. AP photographer was there. I was there. Kim from another newspaper was there. Everybody was there. Oh, Rosie Posey, is it Cody Powder? I'll go find out. I had a heart of stone when I started working for the newspaper. I wasn't afraid of anything in the world. Even Singman Reed, even General MacArthur, oh, Panther. I walked up the stairs and saw a man with Ray-Bans. Oh, Cody Hoity, only two stars on his cap. He didn't look like a general at all. Are you General Park? But nobody, nobody knew. knew. Oh, shoes. Oh, news, excuse me. I started rolling the film, a close-up of General Park. That day, the AP photographer's photo of the general was in Newsweek and the Washington Post. Later, the photographer became the Blue House security chief. Oh, well, anyhow, I made a story. Oh, petty coup, you made powder. I said to General Park, your men are in control of Kimpo Airport. No news is allowed out of the country to New York, Washington. Ha, I exaggerated. Or Tokyo. He said, come to my office and let's talk. Of course, I didn't go. One hour later, I shipped my film to New York via Tokyo. Oh, pretty shoes. Act four, U.S. Ambassador's Garden Party. Several days after the May 16th coup d'etat, a waltz of flowers, azalea in deep pink, its sides varied by wide-angle lens, super-wide lens, telephoto lens. During the war, a reporter from Seoul Daily came to find me in Pusan. He said, it is very hard to find you. Why don't you come back to Seoul, work for the paper? I said, what about the draft? He said it would be like serving in the military, permanently. Azalea, you make powder. The reporter came back for my answer. I said, after the war, and when I'm old, how would I explain myself to my grandchildren? What I did during the war. He said, what? Grandchildren? I said, I would like to stay in Kusan. Azalea, you make powder. How many stars were there? Yes, ma'am. A four-star general, a three-star general, a two-star general, over ten stars. Oh, lovely brides. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine commanders, Rosie Posey. They posed in front of the map, not an ordinary map. Wires, flags, hills, mines, pajamas. How many shots? Yes, ma'am. One shot. One flash. Oh, beautiful picture. Oh, ring spots. How many albums? Yes, ma'am. A three-star general ordered 100 photo albums from Japan. General Ken wants to see you. Overly ovaries. 
The general talked for a whole hour how to organize his old photographs. Overly ovaries, he brought me two shoeboxes. He grinned. Overly ovaries, photos of his service in his Japanese military. Overly ovaries, how overly. Year by year, I went modern style, no blemishes. General Kim wants to have dinner with you. Thank you, but I would like to go home to my baby son. Petals fall and bloom again. General Kim became defense minister. Nobody opened their mouths about the fraudulent election. But the university students, high school students, even Shushan boys protested. Oh, mayhem. Ministers took off. General Kim walked down the stairs and spoke with the foreign press. I was operating a movie camera. Oh, seaweed, he smiled. Oh, parade, you are my foreign aid. Hemotet of flowers, still at the ambassador's garden party in the middle of Seoul. How do you do, Mr. Ambassador? How do you do? Modern style? I do. Overly ovaries. General Kim, how do you do? One shot, no spots. How many baby azaleas? Did something happen? The world wants to know. Singman Reed has left for Hawaii. Modern style, of course. Do petals fall and bloom again? Tell the world we want coating powder. Oh, totally tethered. Does it pattern? Oh, pattern matter. Do you batter? Oh, coating party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, coating party. That was Don Mi Choi in 2017, giving her talk, Translation is a Mode, Translation is an Anti-Neocolonial Mode, which is available as a pamphlet published this year by Ugly Duckling Press. Thank you to the Hugo House in Seattle, Washington for co-presenting this event with us. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. Next week, we'll be back with Joshua Beckman's final lecture for season one, Friendship, Porousness, and the Intimate Experience of Poetry. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they are available, please subscribe. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker, with help from Caitlin Airy Johnson. Thanks for listening. 
Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.